A little housekeeping real quick. Good morning, by the way. Glad you guys are here. Um, Clayton Keith Hancock was born January 9th at 8.05 p.m. And I got a text message at 8.50 from his father, David. It said, dude, dot, 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 I just delivered my son. And being a new father, I almost corrected him and says, no, you caught your son. Your wife delivered his son. But I know what you meant because I said the same thing. So congratulations to you both. And Clayton born into a good, godly family. So we're excited to watch you guys raise him and, and grow up. Uh, raise him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yeah. So if she gets up and has to tend to him, don't, don't be distracted. Uh, last week... Brian preached uh, on the book of James, and the message was um, about remaining steadfast and uh, that God does not tempt anyone uh, by evil or with evil. And so we've, we're going to go through this book of James uh, over the next another 14 weeks, I believe. And the last part of or the first part of, of my sermon kind of fit in better with the last part of his sermon. So I want to go through just a little bit, uh, a couple of verses, but we're going to read James 1, 16 through 18, jumping right into it. And the writer says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or scattered throughout the nations, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18 says, of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his uh, of his creatures. So um, this is this passage here, I, I believe, kind of fits in a little bit better with Brian's message from last week as it's a kind of fulfillment of the fact that God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted and that he calls us to remain steadfast and then he says, don't be deceived that the gifts that we get, the good gifts and the perfect gifts that we get come from God. They come from the, the heavenly realms. They come from the father of light and that he brought us. Uh, he brought us through his will and his desire through the word of truth. And so I wanted to just touch on that really quickly and then jump into verses 19 through 21, because 19 through 21, there's a lot of information here. And the thing that I like about this 19 through 21 or through 27, and then it goes into chapter two, uh, is that it seems to go from some basic step, basic points to remain steadfast. And then the good gifts come from God. Do not blame the evil and the temptations that are in our lives uh, based on our own or based on God's uh, plan, but based on our own struggles. But then, but then the writer gets into this. This practical application of how we live. It's a, it's a section that ends with the teaching that God is the giver of good things. And it transitions into a section where it starts to really hit home close to how we live internally. One, we recognize the gifts are from God. And now the writer seems to be transitioning into some practical applications of our life. And it's going to be that way as we go through the entire book of James, I feel like from here on out. So we're going to start at verse 19, James chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, three verses. And the writer says, know this, my beloved brothers, 
Let every person be quick to hear. I'm reading out of the ESV. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We're going to start with this idea or this teaching Be quick to hear and slow to speak, meaning open, be open to listen immediately, not arrogant and and not kind of a know it all. And I'm sure all of us have been in a conversation with someone. Maybe it was me. I don't know where we're having a conversation about something. And instead of being slow to respond or slow to speak, we immediately start uh, getting in our echo chamber and start saying exactly What we think without really taking on and listening to what's being spoken. And I've I've had conversations with with people where I'm opening up the Bible or I say the sky is blue or I say the earth is round. And before I can even get out a sentence, there's this argumentative redaction to what I'm saying. And this just like quick and arrogant. and, and, And the Bible here is saying, be quick to hear And be slow to respond or be slow to speak. And the ancients, when you look back at some of the old writings, they had some sayings on this subject that I would consider very sage advice. And we've all heard kind of the idea of this. And uh, one was men have two ears and but one tongue that they should hear more than they speak. Another one, the ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction. But the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in. And to keep it within proper bounds. I like that picture that this writer says. He's got the, the, the tongue. Uh, the tongue is surrounded by a double row of teeth to hedge the words in. Another one is how noble was the response of Xenocrates when he met the reproaches of others with a profound silence. Someone asked him why he alone was silent. He replied, because I have sometimes had occasion to regret that I've spoken, never that I was silent. Another one says, be swift to hear and with deep consideration, give answer. Rabbis have similar sentiments, talk little and work much. Um, and then we're going to look at some passages, Proverbs chapter ten nineteen, And I have some of this on your printout, but don't feel like you need to flip to it. I'm just going to read what the scriptures say about being slow to speak and, and uh, quick to hear. With words are many transgression. When words are many transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 13 says, he who guards his mouth keeps his life. Proverbs 15, the tongue of the wise use knowledge aright, but the mouth of the fools pour out foolishness. My personal favorite is when Abraham Lincoln, some say it was Mark Twain, I think it was Abraham Lincoln, said, better to remain silent and thought of a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. We've all heard that, I'm sure, either from Abe Lincoln or Mark Twain. And I think it was Abe Lincoln. And I think he took that saying, better to remain silent and thought of a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. I think he got that from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. that says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. You can be a fool and not speak and people won't realize it. They'll think you're intelligent because you didn't say anything. Slow to speak. So the previous passages that we've looked at, 
on being quick to hear covers the slow to speak contents and the quick to hear. But notice it doesn't say do not speak. It just says slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to speak. It doesn't say do not speak. So James here is teaching that wisdom comes from hearing and we ought to be slower to respond than we are to hear. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Because I think some of this passage has as much to do with... Uh, I think it has much to do with basic life and getting counsel, but, but I also think a lot of this has to do with the teaching that comes from the Word. The teaching that comes from the Word of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 through 3, Solomon writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. I think we would agree that having an immediate reaction to something without contemplating the content or the context is a bad idea. I think it's wise to listen more than we speak. Someone told me once, not many years ago, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You should listen twice as much as you speak. I, that makes sense to me. Okay, I'll be quiet and I'll keep talking. So this passage in James obviously addresses this concept of hearing much and speaking little. But then the next passage, which is after a comma of anger in verse 20, it says, or I'm sorry, before, uh, before that in verse 20 and 19, when it says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's the passage that I spent most of my time looking into. Because the speak little, hear much makes a lot of sense to me. The anger side of it, because I've, I've said things in advance and I said things too quickly where I regretted it and said, I would, now, I, now they know I'm foolish in this uh, situation. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Thursday. What's today? Sunday. A couple days ago. I'm at the Mesa County Building Department and I'm talking to an engineer and I'm talking to three bureaucrats. I hope you're listening about stormwater management. And there's this big pond that we have to dump our water into. And I was under the assumption that that pond, even though we developed it, that pond took all of our stormwater, dumped it into the pond, and then from the pond, it took the water and dumped it into the creek, which a mile and a half later ends up in the Colorado River. So I said, well, it just doesn't make sense to me that you guys would require that we infill or we capture this pollutant, which is red dirt. We capture this pollutant before it ends up in the river. When it goes to the pond, the guy says, that's your irrigation pond. And I went, oh, I can't believe I, I should have just listened for a little bit longer. And I thought quickly, and I thought, well, why don't we just use this irrigation pond as our retention pond and capture all the stormwater? And that way it'll silt down to the bottom. And so I had a response to it. But had I just been a little slower and waiting to hear their response, I wouldn't have looked like a fool to this guy. So slow to speak, quick to listen. The next passage talks about anger, slow to anger. And this is the concept that's probably been the most difficult for me to understand because of the world we live in today. And it's anger. 
Am I called as a Christian to not feel the emotion of anger that God put in me? Is that what God is calling me to? Is he saying, don't be angry? Um, Is God telling me here that I should not express or show anger when immoral people perform immoral actions? Who here has seen that movie, Sound of Freedom? Did you feel anger, Rick? I did too. I felt anger at that movie. Another question, am I being called as a Christian to have control over the emotion of anger that God put in me? I want to answer these questions, but Proverbs 16, 32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and whoever rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The, the Bible is so full of this concept of righteous indignation. And so there's got to be a difference between righteous indignation versus righteous anger Versus just flippant anger, flippant uh, being upset about something. And so I want to look at some passages that talk about this righteous indignation to show from a biblical point of view that righteous indignation, anger, is actually something that God not only approves of, but has commanded in certain situations. Did Jesus ever get angry? Did God ever portray anger in his word? Through his actions? Do any of the New Testament followers of Jesus ever show anger through their action, through their response to something? I think yes to answer all those questions. The first one is Moses had this righteous indignation against Israel when there was the uh, there was the golden calf that was created. Moses was up on a mountain with God and they comes down and Aaron and they and them fashion the golden calf. And we know the story, right? The golden calf gets fashioned. They look at it. They get angry. And God says, I want to destroy all of them and build up a great nation through you, Moses. And Moses says, hold on, God, don't do that quite yet. So what did they do instead? They went around and killed all the people that worshiped the golden calf through the Levites. Does that sound angry to you? Does that sound righteous indignation to you? That was God's reaction. That was God's reaction to the disobedience and the worshiping of a false God. And that would be considered righteous indignation. Do not be quick to anger. Be slow to anger. But he got angry. The Levites showed anger when they did what they did to their relatives. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is when Jesus, who we are to look at and walk as he did, when he goes into the temple... And he sees these money changers exchanging these sacrifices and taking money and then selling them back other sacrifices for probably the same sacrifice for either an inflated amount or the same amount of money, most likely an inflated amount. And he makes a cord and he whips them and he drives them out and he's angered. He says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. We see that he's got this emotion of anger. Because of what they did, this righteous indignation, because what they were doing by keeping people's true worshipful relationship with God and they were severing it or they were impeding it by their greed, by their uh, by their pride, mostly by their greed. Another example of Jesus that I've always liked is in Matthew 23 when he gets upset at the religious leaders of the day. He calls them, I believe it's seven times. He says, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. 
you hypocrites. He wasn't saying, guys, don't be hypocrites. It, there's an exclamation point when he's, he's yelling at the religious leaders about their hypocrisy in leading the people to a relationship with God. There is a, an anger there, a righteous, what I would consider a righteous indignation um, from Jesus. What about Paul? When Paul said to the Galatian church, the leaders in the Galatian church that were saying, or some people in the Galatian church, they were saying, in order for you to become a Christian, you have to obey the law of Moses, which included circumcision. You have to be circumcised and you have to obey the whole law of Moses. What did Paul say to them? Guys, don't do that. That's not very nice. No, if you read the first chapter of Galatians, he says, I wish you would go the whole way and emasculate yourselves. He says, you guys, I want you to emasculate themselves. Look it up if you don't know what it means. He is getting very adamant about that. He gets adamant with Paul and he calls Paul out because Paul or uh, Peter. Paul calls Peter out because of the hypocrisy that he was dealing with against the fornicator in the church at Corinth. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gets angry and says, kick him out of the church. Warn him. Kick him out. Separate yourself from him because he is evil. There's this concept of evil that God calls us to have a righteous indignation over. It is not just saying, okay, we're going to be gentle and agree. And if this is evil and it's, it's okay because we don't want to be judgmental. And that's what the world is telling us, that Christians are supposed to be loved. Then why are you challenging something that you don't agree with? And the Christian's response should be, it's not just that I don't agree with it. It is against God's holiness the creator of the universe. Therefore, we must not be okay with it and be accepting of it. In the fifth Psalm, it says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. This is Psalm chapter five, verses uh, four through six. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. That, mean, that word abhors means hate. Now, who wrote the fifth psalm? David. And it was in reference to what happened with Bathsheba. In the fifth psalm, he's talking about what happened with Bathsheba. And he says, for you are God, not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God is looking at the evil and he abhors it and he hates it. And I could have spent an hour on the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament that show that concept. It's not just one verse taken out of context. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the psalmist's writings that God hates evil. He hates the evil doer. Yet he still died for him. So let's be careful Not to take what the world's definitions of Christianity are and apply that to our church body or apply that to your doctrine. Be very cautious when you look at the word of God and you look at what the teaching of the world is and say, well, the majority believe this. Therefore, the minority must be incorrect. Be careful not to kind of. Dismiss scripture about who God is and what he says because people don't agree with it. Because his ways are higher 
than our ways. So when I look at this idea of anger and what God says about anger, and I look, okay, that's Old Testament. I understand that. What about New Testament? We've got to come to some sort of conflict resolution when it comes to what our role is as Christians being the salt and the light and to see evil and good and be able to differentiate between the two. And how do we feel as Christians that have a role in the society? How do we feel as Christians to say, no, that's not okay? I hate the sin. I hate the evil. God hates it. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, let love be genuine. This is written to Christians in the church after the resurrection of Jesus, after the ascension of Jesus. 30 years after they write this letter and he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Hold fast. Hold strongly to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is another practical application Bible verse or verses that tell us how we as Christians who claim to be Christians are supposed to live. It's like this book that says here, this is how I want you to live. Listen, speak little and don't be angry. Oh, but hate what is evil. Have righteous indignation in your anger. Do not sin. Bless those who persecute you. There's the how you can hate evil. But how do you address it? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be prideful or haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We can hate evil. We can hate what is evil, but God says, vengeance is mine. I've said many times to friends, I'm going to see the dark side of Nate Porter here, just so I'll confess to you in advance. If anybody ever hurt my daughter or one of my sons, they wouldn't find that person. Because I have a family member that's pretty sharp about stuff like this and said, you know, if you do this and this and this, they'd never find the person. Logged it, got it. That's how I feel. If you ever hurt one of my children, you know how I feel now, don't you? Just you walk differently, don't you? You walk differently. You feel differently. It gets to this emotional side. Any father knows how that feels. Any mother knows how that feels. If you hurt one of mine, you will hurt worse. That's what I feel inside. And when I look at the scripture and it says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I wrestle. I wrestle with that. I know my dad wrestles with it, too. 
Like, is it my job to get vengeance on someone? The word evil is worthless, depraved, injurious, mischief, lewd, or wicked. One theologian wrote, based on his understanding of all scriptural, that evil is usually thought of as all that which is morally wrong, sinful, or wicked. It can also mean or refer to anything that causes harm with or without moral dimension. Anything that contradicts the holy nature of God is evil. Think about that. Think about that. Anything that contradicts the holy nature of God is evil. So we live in a culture, we live in a society that is adamantly and forcefully shoving down Christians' throats things that are against the divine nature of God. Well, why are you getting political? I'm not getting political. I'm getting biblical. We, we can read this in Romans. This is what's happening in our culture today. And we as Christians are called to stand firm and say, no, that is against the holy nature of God. That is immoral. That is evil. That is sinful. That is uncorrect, according to my king. Now, do I love that person in the biblical sense that I want them to be released from the bondage of sin? Absolutely. 100%. But love is not acceptance. That's what we have to understand. Love is not acceptance. If my sister here had terminal, someone I don't know has, no, my sister has terminal cancer. And I had a, a pill that I said, hey, this will cure your terminal cancer. Would it be loving for me to withhold that? Absolutely not. Loving would be, here, take this. I know the color purple offends you, but it will save your life. That's loving, not keeping it back, but sharing it. However, I write here, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness. I don't write here. God writes here in verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness in man that God requires. The anger of man. Notice it doesn't say the anger of God. It says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness in man that God requires. There is a difference between righteous indignation and... And anger, and we're going to see what it is. I'm going to use a funny. Who here has seen the show Dude Perfect? Raise your hand. Dad, you can raise your hand too. (laughs) Thanks for being honest. I've seen Dude Perfect. Dude Perfect is like, I'm going to take this pen, and you see that little hook up there on the wall next to the light? They show a video, and he just goes, Yeah! <laughs> because it hooked perfectly on that. It, the pin hooked on the hook. It stayed on the hook. Now, it takes them probably a thousand tries to get there, but it's an entire series of videos of them throwing ping pong balls or basketballs or shooting a bow and arrow like this to a flying balloon across something. It's pretty cool what they do, and they've created this whole cult following of dude perfect 
things that they perform. It's really neat. But there's a guy in their show, which is, has a lot to do with marketing, and his name is the Rage Monster. Who knows the Rage Monster? Okay, the Rage Monster is the guy, Patrice Laffin. Okay, Patrice Laffin. is like, in a, they're in a free throw competition, and he gets up there, and he shoots and misses and hits off the rim, and all of a sudden, his head starts singing, and, and he's got the good and the bad, and he's like, <laughs> he freaks out, and he starts running around and throwing stuff, and throwing like a, this one where they're, they're like, hey, your membership got canceled, and he's, he's lifting weights, and he gets mad, and he throws a little five-pound weight through the wall, and he's actually destroying things. Somebody bumps into his car or trips and spills some, why are you laughing? He like trips and spills ice cream on his car and he freaks out and he grabs a jackhammer and they go way overboard just to prove a point. And he's called the rage monster. That's anger. Now it's a joke and they're doing it for effect, obviously, and they create a lot of following because of it. They're like, oh, the rage monster's on. Like, hey, you lost in fantasy football. And he starts throwing his buddies through the windows, you know, because he gets upset. That is the anger of man that does not produce righteousness in man that God requires. We've got to have a difference in understanding of what is righteous indignation, angry, hating evil, and having a quick reaction of anger because we can't control ourselves. I don't have the spirit of self-control. As it says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-control or self-discipline. That's the spirit that God gave us. It's okay to be angry at sin. In fact, God calls us to abhor evil. To hate evil. But he says, be slow to anger. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. And slow to anger. If anger is something that you struggle with. If anger is something that you just can't seem to control because you throw a temper tantrum or because you get angry when somebody cuts you off and your initial reaction is, if that's your initial reaction, God needs to intervene in that. God's got to jump in there and say, you, you've, got to, you've got to figure this out because that is not godly. And that is not producing the righteousness that God requires. Look at that passage. It says that in James. I mean, he, he pulls no punches. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I mean, he even says that we must fulfill all righteousness. We must walk as he did. We must be, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. I hope that helps gain some sort of understanding between righteous indignation and anger that's uncontrollable or it's controllable, but you choose not to for whatever reason. I hope there's an understanding there. And finally, in verse 21, 
Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. On this particular verse, I read quite a bit on it. and I studied through different scriptures and some different commentaries and things that I like to read. And I'm just going to read. I'll confess you, I cut and pasted the uh, commentary on this because I felt it was very appropriate and I couldn't have worded it better. Put away all filthiness. And this was, uh, I, I juxtapose this with a lot of other readings and commentaries and scriptures. And so uh, I'm confident in this, in this understanding of this passage. Therefore, put away all filthiness. There's this, this concept of putting on and putting off in scripture. That we're to put on Christ and we're to put off everything else too. We're supposed to bring in the Christ teachings and we're supposed to remove ourselves of everything else that is against God's nature. Uh, the filth, the whole, the, the unholiness. That's what we're supposed to remove ourselves of. So the word here rendered filthiness. It, according to several places I've read, this particular word doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's applied to evil conduct considered as disgusting or offensive. Sin may be contemplated as a wrong thing, as a violation of law. As evil in its nature and tendency and therefore to be avoided. Or it may be contemplated as disgusting, offensive, loathsome. So think about that. He's talking about to put off, put away all filthiness. Sin be considered filth. And sin could be, according to Romans, as a breaking of the law. The law gives us these the rules, the, the, the Exodus and the, the, the Ten Commandments. They give us these rules that we're to live by. And anything that you break, anything that you don't do um, according to that or anything you do that's uh, not according to that is considered a sin. So, uh, did I lose you, Rick? All right, love you, brother. We'll be praying. We'll be praying for you. Okay, Kurt, you want to help? No. Uh, sin can be this uh, this this disobedience to the law, and then you can also have this concept of evil as its uh, its nature and its tendency is to be avoided. It's disgusting. It's offensive. It's loathsome. Um, to a pure mind in any form is more loathsome than most offensive object can be to any of the senses. Here's what I picture. I picture my grandma, Anna. Okay, 93 years old, lived in a completely different culture than, than I grew up in. And what things that were somewhat acceptable in my culture and in my generation, which we're seeing a toilet bowl effect right now of things that are completely acceptable... But what he's saying is to put away, remove all filthiness. And it's not just a breaking of the law, but it's something that Christians would consider just vile. And when I think of my grandma, Anna, I think of things that I, as a young man, considered like, that's normal. My grandma, Anna, would make a very godly, soft, beautiful comment like, that's filthy. That's disgusting. I, I can't believe that would be on a billboard. I'm like, well, it's just a billboard advertising a casino. I, that's, that's gross. Because our culture, my culture, before I became a Christian, before I started looking at those things as filthy, it was acceptable. But someone that had been brought up in church and recognized the evil nature of that, they stopped going, ah, oh, that's okay. They never went, that's okay. What they went is like, that's vile. That's, that's unholy. That's disgusting. 
And that's what Paul or James is saying is, is rid yourselves, put away all filthiness. It's the only time that word's used in, in the Bible is in that term. And then it says, and, uh, and rampant wickedness, rampant wickedness, literally abounding of evil. He had just spoken of sin in one aspect as filthy, loathsome, detestable. Here he designs to express his abhorrence of it by a still more emphatic description. And he speaks of it not merely as an evil, but as an evil abounding, overflowing. I'll get to the heart of the matter. Purity of heart is the best preparation always for seeing the force of truth. Because one is talking about the vile nature of things. The other one is talking about a corrupt mind come from a doctrinal standpoint. And he's saying in order to receive this in meekness, in order to receive the biblical teachings, in order to be able to put off the vile nature of things, in order to do that, we must receive it with meekness. Be slow to speak, be quick to hear, and slow to get angry. With an open mind and an open heart to the instruction we receive and to the fair influence of truth. Meekness when he says receive with meekness, meekness, gentleness, docility, and everywhere are everywhere required in receiving the instructions of religion as they are in obtaining knowledge of any kind. The engrafted word, the gospel, is here represented under the image of that which is implanted or engrafted from another source by a figure that would be readily understood. For the art of engrafting is everywhere known. Sometimes the gospel is represented under the image of the seed sown, like in Matthew. But here it is under the figure of a shoot implanted or engrafted that produces fruit of its own. Whatever may be the original character of the tree into which it is engrafted. The meaning here is that we should allow the principles of the gospel to be thus engrafted on our nature. That however crabbed or perverse our nature, our nature may be, or however bitter and vile the fruits which it might bring forth of its own accord, it might, through the engrafted word, produce the fruits of righteousness. I know that was a lot, and I probably should have just paraphrased it instead of read it, because it's hard for me to even understand it without reading it several times. But what I gather here from this scripture, verse 21, is that what... He, James is calling us to do is to when we see the word, it started out with be quick to listen and slow to speak. When we see the word, when we see the gospel, when we see the teachings, the very basic, simple to understand, it's not mysterious. It's not cryptic, especially James chapter two, what we're looking at right now. This isn't like this mysterious letter where we go, what does he mean by that? Well, he means is that you should put off everything that's filthy, that we should hate evil, that we should look at the things of the world and go, that's that's filth. That's disgusting. I'm going to put that away. When we look at this scripture and our brain is open to it, when our heart is open to it, when our soul is open to it, that's when we can accept things with humility. But when we're looking to justify something in our hearts, that's when we're quick to regurgitate a response to fight against what the word says, to fight against what truth is. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with humility, receive with meekness the implanted word, the gospel, which is able to save our souls. As I look at this whole portion of scripture 
um, this letter, especially this whole book of James that was given to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations that were dispersed. I see from here on out, from today on forward, this again, this practical application of how we are called to live. And like I said, it's not a mysterious thing, guys. It's not cryptic. It's not like something we have to really dissect and look at and go, I don't understand what he means by put away all filthiness. I don't understand what he means like next week, uh, be doers of the word. What does he mean by be doers of the word? Well, it's very simple. Don't listen to it and then go, wow, that's a great teaching. And then don't do it. I mean, when it says here, be doers of the word, because it just got done talking about my beloved brothers, be uh, quick to uh, listen Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and put away filthiness. Oh, that's great. I should put away filthiness. Excellent sermon, brother. And then you don't put it away. I don't mean to take the next week's message and throw it into this week's, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. I mean, that's what the whole passage is about. The whole, the whole book of James, as we go through the sin of partiality, the faith without works is dead, to tame your tongue, the wisdom from above, the, wor- the warning against being worldly, um, being a braggart about tomorrow, the warning to the wealthy, the warning to the rich, and being patient in suffering. And then finally, the prayer of faith. Every single section in this book is something that we can apply to our lives and become more Christ-like. And I've said before, Christianity is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not over like that. It's a constant. I'm getting a little bit better every single day. I'm seeking God. If I struggle with anger, like a child would struggle with anger that hasn't been trained. If I struggle with that, I'm going to go to God and say, God, please help me become more Christ-like. If I struggle with lust, if I struggle with pride, if I struggle with uh, jealousness or envy, whatever it is, if I struggle with judgment on people, it's going to God and saying, God, please help me get rid of this. Help me put it off because it's filth. And I know your word says you hate evil. I know the word says that we are to hate evil. And that's the whole synopsis of this passage, I believe, is God saying, take the word with humility and say, Lord, I'll take it. Give it to me. Help me apply it to my daily walk. Because when we don't do that, not to get into next week's sermon, but it says you deceive yourselves. (laughs) It's deceptive. Father of lies, the deceiver is Satan. And when we look at the scripture, then we go, all right, it's great teaching, God, thank you. But we don't apply it? Well, we'll look at the dangers of that next week. All righty. Are you up, brother? Yeah. Right on. Okay.